you know, a lot of times, a lot of comics are we're trying to discover truths or discover things about ourselves or society. And when you can pinpoint that thing that is very hard to put into words and you really nail that, I think that's really fun. Welcome to another episode of Good is in the Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky. In this episode, Rudy Salo and I talk with comedian, filmmaker, Matt Ritter about his documentary, Tasteless. And it's all about these books from the 80s called Tasteless Jokes that were extremely popular. And the documentary takes a look at essentially the nature of the joke, the context, cultural attitudes. And then in the episode, we start talking about the issue of cancel culture and Twitter. And then we start talking about what does it mean to be successful? So before we get to the interview, I want to give a thank you to our patrons and thank you to the people who have rated and reviewed the show. It really means a lot. Keep it coming. And it is because of your support. Good as in the details was able to support another organization. In the last couple of weeks, a lot of you, maybe like me, have been thinking, what can I do? I want to be more than a hashtag. So good as in the details for this month donated to an organization called Black Table Arts. And it is a community specifically for Black writers, artists, people in theater, and I will link them to the show notes as well. I will also link the raffle. Get your copy. We're going over part one for a future episode. If you have any questions, it'll be part of the episode. You will ask the author. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it's a great read. I mean, come on, we're in quarantine. Read. Okay, now let's get to some tasteless jokes. So Matt, when we've had a couple of comedians on the show before, one of the questions I have is what makes something funny and what makes something unfunny? What is the essence of comedy? Okay, I think the essence of comedy is surprise. I think if you tell a joke and everybody knows it's coming, it's not funny. But if they, if they don't know it's coming, it is funny. It kind of hits something. I don't know if it's neurological or just something inside. It's sort of like magic where you go, oh, you know, and it gives you that reaction. In terms of, you know, physicality, I mean, I think the oldest, you know, form of comedy is physical comedy. I think they still say, you know, a lot of the laughter comes from nonverbal communication. So I think a lot of comics today would probably be would be useful for them to kind of take that lesson still, even in doing shows in Zoom, like still figure out little ways to, you know, use your cadence and micro expressions and anything you can do to convey comedic gestures, because I think those are still universally funny. Yeah. I'm working on a paper on Lucille Ball. And I keep thinking about that, about all of her. Well, the idea came to me because I was on a plane and I didn't have my earbuds or anything. And I don't normally watch TV on a plane, but I was taking a break and I looked up and there was the episode with her and the grape stomping scene. Yeah, And so I couldn't hear it. There was no surprise, but I was still laughing, even though I had seen the episode a million times. And I think that she had the gesture down. Yeah. But maybe it was also because she was stepping outside of a gender norm. She was challenging yeah. that. Yeah. And um, that's something, Rudy, that I text you that I'm thinking about is laughter and agreement. Mm-hmm. That there's something when we're laughing, is there an agreement? Mm-hmm. I think there's also something about discovery that makes something funny. 
Yeah. You know, a lot of times, a lot of comics are we're trying to discover truths or discover things about ourselves or society. And when you can pinpoint that thing that is very hard to put into words and you really nail that, I think that's really fun. Your work on tasteless. What makes a joke tasteless? Well, it's very funny to ask now because I think if I if we record this now and it comes out in a week, that could change because the bounds of what society deems acceptable or tasteful or tasteless is constantly evolving. And if you look at these books, the Truly Tasteless series, which this documentary is based on, you know, these books came out in the 80s and they were the number one bestseller of any book at all for like four years straight. And so maybe they were tasteless, but we certainly all agreed that they were acceptable, right? But now, you know, you probably couldn't even read half of the jokes in this book out loud for you know, a variety of reasons that, you know, are not, they're now deemed to be taboo. What was interesting about that was also from your movie, which is great, by the way, I loved it. So much deep thought behind it and it's very well done. But what I loved was the little infographic showing that the, that the book really started to take off because it was sold at the at grocery store stands along yeah. with like the best-selling magazines. And, you know, I remember being a little kid and while my mom was shopping, she'd send me over to the, to the magazine rack and we'd look at stuff. And I'm sure I saw truly tasteless jokes and was exposed to it. And it's just night and day of what children were exposed to, even even in a pretty innocuous place as a supermarket back in the 80s as compared to today. I mean, can you imagine what kind of riot you'd have on your hands if that those books were just sitting at the grocery checkout counter for kids to grab? Imagine if your kid just grabbed that and started reading out loud. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, I mean, you know, what makes something tasteless is societal agreement, really. I mean, I don't, you know, I, so I have a real problem with any one individual trying to decide what's tasteless or not. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the big issues that a lot of comics and a lot of people are taking issue is with this idea of quote unquote cancel culture. I think it's overutilized as a term now, but I think it cuts to the idea of who is the arbiter of comedy. And I always thought, the marketplace was a fairly good arbiter of comedy. I think it's a better arbiter than a blogger on Twitter. Hey, Gwen, does that kind of go to your point of this essay or series or anything that uh, you're writing about, about laughter being agreement? At some point, truly tasteless jokes, even though there was agreement, the book was called Tasteless, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, books, the jokes were tasteless. They were acceptable supposedly for the mass audiences if they were being sold in the grocery store. And how do we know they're acceptable? People were laughing about it. People were purchasing those books at one particular time. Right. Now to, yeah. now today, if there is no laughter, then there, with respect to those jokes, then there is no agreement. So your, is, is uh, your yeah. point there, Gwen, that laughter or, or comedy is uh, an extremely flexible concept which can be affected by time, affected by societal acceptance, and something that is probably the best reflective of that is truly tasteless jokes. And Matt's movie points that out about the shift from the 1980s to now and how unacceptable any of the jokes in this book are these days. Yeah. I looked up some of the tasteless jokes. Oh boy. Okay. And so I'm not going to say which ones, but I did chuckle. And then I was thinking, wait a minute, what am I laughing at? Am I laughing at that somebody ever thought that this was funny? Like since it was in the context of tasteless, 
it was okay maybe for me to laugh. Was I laughing at the joke or was I laughing that somebody thought that that was okay? If I was at a dinner party and somebody just said, hey, everyone, I got one and said that, I probably wouldn't laugh in the same way. I mean, I'm not entirely sure. Well, I mean, I think there is something to the idea of these spheres where in the privacy of your own home with your significant other, probably can laugh about whatever the heck you want. And there is no tasteless in that zone, right? There's the intimate agreement there. Yeah, there's an intimate agreement, right? In a comedy club, I also feel that there is an agreement that you're signing up to be hearing things that may be out of the outer bounds of what you'd hear at a dinner party, right? Isn't that the idea? Isn't that the fun, right? I mean, that is the arena, right? You go to the Coliseum to see a blood sport. You know, you go to a comedy show, you have, you know, in some way, I always thought, signed away your rights, decide by trying to get somebody canceled, at least. You can walk out, you know, you want to complain to the manager. But now we have, a weird, we have weird spheres, right? So Twitter is a, a weird sphere that's like public and private in the sense that people can opt in at any point to your conversations. And so, you know, you could be talking to a friend over there, but it sounds like you're announcing something to the world. Uh, and it also sounds like you're announcing it and you don't know tone, you know, is this, was this a joke? Was this something serious? And so, you know, you can get caught in a situation where you're putting something out and you have no idea how it's going to come back. It could really be a complete disaster for your entire career. So we have all these new weird spaces to navigate what comedy is. And I, you know, I think inevitably if you're a risk-taking comic, you're going to get caught more than maybe if you're more of a safer comic who doesn't really trade in taboos. But I would hate to lose an entire section of comedy that kind of does just challenge. And, you know, I don't think comedy is all about challenging or I don't think comedy is any one thing. I, I think every comic has a different opinion. And I think any, every individual has a different idea of what they find funny. But Again, society decides, quote unquote, what is tasteless at any given time. And you can make that choice as a comedian, whether you want to challenge that. You know, I think the market, you know, is, is a fair dictator of, hey, well, are you going to lose your ability to earn an income, right? Like Gilbert Gottfried lost that job because he made a 9-11 joke when he was an Affleck in insurance salesman. You know, by the same token, Dave Chappelle was as raw as he ever was and Netflix paid him you know, $100 million this year. So, you know, I don't know that it's um, sort of that you could blanket say, hey, uh, cancel culture is ruining everything because then how do you explain Dave Chappelle? You're a fellow lawyer. I, yeah. I'm a lawyer as well. And you, and you brought up some pretty interesting concepts of where the comedy is being spoken or where the comedy is occurring. Mm -hmm. A comedy club uh, typically, typically is 18 and over or 21 and over. Yeah. And I believe either on the back of a ticket or, the, or a sign someplace in a comedy club, if they don't have this, then, then they have horrible legal representation. But they must have something somewhere that says, look, by entering into uh, this uh, comedy club, uh, you realize there's going to be some explicit language and some things could be offensive. And by paying for this ticket, you are hereby consenting to listen to this something along those lines, there's that consent, there's that communal, right. you know, legal aspect to it. The interesting thing that you brought up about, and fair enough, you don't really hear a lot about comedians saying stuff in a comedy club, per se, other than, you know, Kramer's stupid meltdown that he had, mm -hmm. and which was just absolutely terrible. Um, and he got punished from it. But in general, you don't hear people 
getting punished for what they say in a comedy club. But what you will see is, you know, what did they write on Twitter? What did they say on social media? So it seems like there is this differential of, you know, that public social media. So social media, in a way, and Gwen Yoon, we've touched upon this a little bit. We touched upon this on our last episode with Jeff Cortez about the nature of social media and how it's quasi-public. Even though it's owned by private corporations, it's quasi-public in that anybody can sign up for it. And there seems to be a difference. If you say something on Twitter, if you do something on Instagram, you're going to be subject to further scrutiny. Uh, I, I don't know if there's legal arguments regarding that, but there does seem to be that differential. Or am I just making that up? No, I mean, I think it's absolutely right. And, you know, I also think, you know, people do this because it's effective. You can shout somebody down on Twitter and, uh, you know, I think there's a power dynamic to it, right? If you are at a comedy club and you don't like something you hear and you try and complain about it, you may get laughed out of the place um, or you walk out and you're just feeling jilted. But if you go on Twitter and you complain about somebody and you write to their boss and say, I can't believe this person did something, you can get a mob to form. Literally, you know, I mean, you can get an online mob and destroy somebody. So I think there is an element of that it's effective more in social, the idea of control and being able to, you know, impose your value judgments on somebody over social media that you can't really do in a comedy club. Do you know of comedians in your circle or even not within your circle, but do you know of certain comedians that say, I'm not on social media because, because, or I'm not on Twitter because I can't, you know, I'm worried about me saying something or reacting something. It's just not worth it. Do you, have you ever heard of any comedians saying that? Do they know that, you know what, if I want to be successful, I got to be on social media. They know that they have to be. I, I've, I don't know any, I look, and I think we've all had that thought, right? We've all had that, oh, I don't want to, I just, why bother? But we need it. I mean, the world, but you know, it's, it's like you see these people who have reached a certain level, like Seinfeld says, he doesn't do colleges because he doesn't want to deal with the, well, good for him. He doesn't need to do that, right? When you're a comic and you're not Jerry Seinfeld, you need every avenue available to you to communicate your comedy. That's just how the world works. I do think they self-censor though. I do think most comics that I know definitely are not giving you the comedy that they would do if they weren't afraid of the level of, there's also the level of consequences, right? I mean, people tell off-color jokes at clubs all the time, or you walk into an open mic, you're going to hear some of the most horrible things you've ever heard in your life. But they know that those are somewhat safe to the career ending kind of consequences that a one-off bad tweet would do to you. You know, even people who are more established, like let's say Jimmy Kimmel, didn't he recently, so he's not going to, I don't think he's going to, he's not going to be canceled, but he recently made a joke about Mike Pence and he was incorrect in his joke and he apologized for it. But the repercussions on social media were like death threats. It's really funny how apologizing is its own fraught argument now. You know, I always just thought, hey, if you screw up, just apologize, right? But that I think the problem with that is that that's not what people want, right? A mob doesn't want an apology. They want, you know, we want to see people suffer. Right? Yeah, I don't know why. A, that's so bad. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a weird psychological. I mean, there's the psychology of groups, I guess. But it's it's like so there are other comics that are like, I'm not going to apologize because then they win, right? It's like these battle lines have been drawn about this thing where nobody wants to, nobody can apologize anymore. Well, then. 
In any of your work, did you notice a difference with, let's say, female comedians and male comedians and the reception when it comes to tasteless jokes or the way that they're responded to on social media? I know that in our doc, Allison had talked about how she felt more threatened when mm-hmm. she put something out there. And I, I definitely have never felt that as a male comic. So maybe that's, you know, something that female comics have to deal with more when they say something that offends the masses, that there's like a level of toxicity that comes with that that's maybe a little scarier from that perspective. Who's the the community? Is it is her name Ali Wong? Yeah. I think she was on she's on the Daily Show and she was talking about how different it was as a comedian, as a female comedian, you know, the shows and in the middle of the night and she's going to her car by herself, that kind of thing. That might actually be a reason why there's not as many women in comedy. Yeah, I mean, look, it's funny. The older I get, the more terrified I am of that exact thing. Like just ending up dead at a bar in Cleveland. Like nobody knows, you know, like nobody finds me for like a week. And it is, it's a solitary life. And, you know, you're in a lot of strange places that, you know, if you're aware of your surroundings, you're like, what the hell am I doing here? But most of the time you just have a lot of alcohol in you and you're like, all right, cool, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's just a weird profession. You know, there's no HR department. There's nobody really looking out for you other than you. Huh. Um, well, I want to ask, so going into the documentary, what were your intentions and then what did you learn? Was there something that unfolded? Yeah. Well, so interestingly, when we, set out to do the documentary, it was kind of just going to be more like the aristocrats for our generation. It was going to be just kind of a light look back at this fun thing. But then when we met the person who wrote it and we found out that she was a woman, we thought, oh, that's really surprising, you know, back then that a woman would have written these, this book of the most horrific jokes, you know, that, that's kind of not probably the stereotype of what you would have thought. So that was interesting to us. And then when we started talking to comics about it, it just spitballed into this thing about like, oh, we're going to have to talk about cancel culture and what comedians are feeling about the state of comedy. Now it just sort of morphed into that just from every interview that we did with comics. They were like, oh yeah, we remember these jokes. We love these books. And then they started like universally, everybody would get into some sort of rant about how it's a lot harder to, you know, to hone your craft today because you're afraid. It's interesting because we were, when we were talking previously, right before we started recording the podcast, and I mentioned, um, I briefly took stand-up comedy lessons. I wanted yeah. to become a better speaker, but because I, I want to teach, I want to do some acting. I do a lot of presentations for my job. I just wanted to get better at it. So I used comedy for it, and I took that class with Jeff Hodge, and I recorded a podcast with him. His show is called Road Trippin'. Jeff Hodge was a past guest on Good Is In The Details, so I always mm-hmm. like to help plug past guests. And on the show, we had a female comedian talk about what her life was like yeah. as a as a female comic. This was back in the, I want to say the late 80s, early 90s, 2000s, and she's still working comic. And what what she, which is not funny, but the person that scared her the most was usually the headline comic or mm. other male comics that she mm. would that she would be on the show with and she told some really terrible stories of what that was like <laughs> and i asked you know is it better these days and she said it mostly is so there is, i mean it does seem like there has been a positive movement in the right direction 
but yeah, I mean, being a, a female comic, uh, going back to your car, worried of being alone, and then you're worried about somebody who you were just on stage with harassing you. Yeah, it, I, it, it's very I know those stories. I know those stories. And I, you know, it's weird because then you're like, well, then I don't want to, you know, I'm afraid also to even like put somebody in that position, bringing a, a female feature. The few times that I've done it, like I, I brought a, a female feature with me because it's like, you'll, then you don't want to like not, you know, you don't want them to feel weird. I let my feature bring her whole family with her at the comedy condo that we had. That's great. That, that, you know, that, I was like, all yeah. right, how can I make this completely safe? According to her, it's in the back of mind of every single. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Media. It's like, it's it really gotta, is. gotta be. It's gotta yeah. be just because there's, there's so many, you know, creepy headliners out there. In, in fact, we, we went into a little bit of the analysis of it, of like, okay, are there... Do, are some ma- are, are male stand-up comics, does it attract the creepy weirdos? Does it yeah. attract people who were, who were yes. made fun of as a kid and used, uh, used comedy as a defense mechanism? Did, are they using comedy because they didn't get the girls back then, but they're using their prowess and comedy in order to pick up women? Yes. We've discussed that too. And, <laughs> and, you, and you must see some of that. Yeah, well, I, of look, I always break up comedy into two. There are two types. There's the type that's like that. And then I think there's a type that's the extension of kind of like the you already had a huge personality and this was like the obvious kind of outlet for it. You know, I was like the class clown in school and making everybody laugh. And I was like, Oh, this is a professional way to just do that. Cool. There's the extroverts who were, this is a natural extension of it. And there's like introverts who have really dark stuff and hilarious stuff to say. Well, now you say you're the class clown. So I have to ask how, did you go through law school and then you decided I'm going to go into comedy? And yeah. are there any skills from law school that you use for comedy? Um, yeah, I learned how to drink pretty heavily in law school. So. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, that, I mean, he's, it's, it's not a joke. Like, like seriously at Georgetown, you were at Penn. Yeah. Georgetown, we had keg in the quad Wednesdays and Fridays. And then every other Monday, it was a keg in the quad, keg in the quad, keg in the quad. The, the drinking culture that goes along with law school is legendary. And so people are like, oh, all lawyers are alcoholics. Yeah, you know what? We kind of learned it in law school because I, I went to college. I was in a fraternity for a couple of years. It was nothing like law school. Law right. school was insane in a lot of ways. Was it like that at Penn too? Yeah, I, I think in a weird way because everybody felt pretty secure in their futures. They were just like, all right, no matter what, everybody's going to make it. It wasn't very ultra competitive, weirdly, in my law school because everybody was like, all right, we'll get a job. So let's just go drink our faces off for three years. Uh, but yeah, no, I always kind of knew I wanted it to be in entertainment, but I come from a family of lawyers. So just kind of walked the conventional path. And then I found myself five years in kind of questioning my existence, just having a hard time just getting out of bed. And so I just Hopped on a plane. Why are you smiling? Because because seven <laughs> seventeen years later, yeah. I, yeah, every every lawyer, every lawyer, Matt knows a lot of lawyers because he also is an, a a phenomenal legal recruiter for yeah. lateral links. So he he really knows a lot of the psychology of a lot of lawyers. He really does. Uh, he hasn't. I mean, it's not. Yeah, every time I call him, I go, "Are you wearing pants?" Right. Yeah. I mean, seriously, it's, <laughs> see, he he can speak to this, but. Every lawyer, I'm telling you, wakes up every morning and goes, can I really do this again today? Yeah. 
I am very thankful. Matt knows this because we're good friends and we talk, you know, heart to heart. I'm very lucky that I have found an area of the law where I feel very passionate about that. I feel like I'm giving back, I'm both giving back to society and getting, you know, a fair compensation on it. Sometimes I'll complain about that, but that's a whole other thing. But I feel good about what I do, helping governments and schools Mm -hmm. and and nonprofits get built and, and access the capital markets. That makes me feel good. That makes me keep going every single time I have that question. But I know Matt must know a lot of lawyers that are probably mostly litigators or in some area that they really don't like but they're so addicted to the money that they keep going rather than having the guts that Matt had and said, nope, I'm done. I'm going to go do something different. I'm going to follow my heart. I know I'm better at other things. I'm going to do it and I'm going to be successful. And he's very successful at it. I bet you he knows most, the fact that most lawyers can't do that. They don't have the guts and they're addicted to the money that they have and they'll be miserable for the rest of their lives. Matt? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things that you hit on there. One is you know, this idea that I am brave to chase my dreams. I think that's such a, it's a weird societal thing that we have about that. Is, is it, is it brave or is it, because the thing is, is if, if you, if you stay at your job, especially now, look at the world, right? I mean, everything just has an illusion of security. You know, there's this illusion of security on our society. And I think that sort of veil has been lifted in a lot of ways. So, you know, it's almost like, what is it exactly that you're, once the, especially the financial security, you know, it's like once that's lifted, it's like, what are you staying for? It's really just fear. And I get a ton of lawyers emailing me about how I did it, you know, and I wish there was anything more than like just one day I just got on a plane and moved to LA because I knew if I didn't just do that, I would, you know, just be mired in misery and, and what ifs. So to me, you know, that's the worst thing I could think of. That's, worse than, you know, all the positives of security is, you know, those what ifs when you, when I think about all the security, put, stack those up to the what ifs, the what ifs are, you know, much higher to me. So yeah, I talked to a lot of lawyers about it and I, and, you know, and I, and I say also too, it's like, I think there is a misconception about following your dreams in terms of, is that really for anybody who has any sort of passion for anything? Like, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say, Hey, you have a passion for something, quit your job and do that thing. Um, Because I don't think that's also true. I think you should really have that conversation with yourself and know the answer to that. If you're emailing me, should I do this? Then you haven't answered that question. Instead, if you're emailing me like I'm doing this, you know, and I would love to talk to you. I think that that's somebody who's like made up their mind to do it. And a lot of times there are things, you know, I mean, look, there are hobbies. It's okay to have hobbies too. And it's okay in this world to not be defined by your day job. I mean, I think when I left the law, there was a little bit, uh, it was a lot harder to do comedy on the side. And, you know, there was, it was a little more taboo. I think these days, uh, especially with millennials and Gen Zers or whatever, people feel a little more free to wear multiple hats. And I think people feel more free to kind of juggle different sides of their personality within different professions, or if it's just like, hey, yeah, I'm a lawyer, but I also am in this band. And, you know, that's all I aspire for it to be. I think it's okay for you to say, I aspire for myself to be in this weekend band because that fulfills the thing that's missing from my job. I agree 100%. And I think you hit the nail 
on the head as you usually always do. Neither you nor I are advocating, I'll just quit your job and follow your dreams. Yeah. No, you know what? There's ways to explore your dreams and get some benefit from those dreams that might be more than enough, you know, to, to satisfy you. You can do comedy um, at night. You can do open mics if that's what you want to do. You might do it for a little while and say, yeah. think, no, you don't want the Netflix special. You just want to, you know, go up on stage right. and have the, the confidence to go on stage and, and tell some jokes and make your friends laugh, but you're comfortable with your day job. This is just another outlet for you to explore the creative side. And if it turns into something great, and if it doesn't, no problem. Yeah. You can write. Uh, anybody can write. They don't have to watch TV. Instead of watching TV, they can write a novel or write a screenplay or do something. It all just comes down to discipline. A lot of people think, no, I can't have a job and pursue my dreams at the same time. I argue that sometimes having the job, having that daily structure, having that paycheck that allows you to take classes, to travel to certain places, to go to certain conferences, is actually better for you. Like you can have a day job and pursue these other passions and you may just realize these are just hobbies and, and they're fulfilling any gaps that I may have. So I'm not one of these people that advocates quit your day job right away. No, 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 no. Explore things first before you go all in. That's what I do. I mean, I, I love my day job. I love the type of law that I do, but I do have these other interests in podcasting and investing and writing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's worked for me. It may not work for everybody else, but it's, it has worked for me. And I think knowing all the things that you do all at the same time, it can be done. Like you can juggle a couple of things and be successful at them. Yeah, and you I have think to you, be honest with yourself because yeah. one of the things is that, like you said, if somebody is emailing you, should I do this? They're already having that conversation. Well, I mean, for me, studying philosophy, I mean, I obviously have gotten the question a million times when I was younger. What are you going to do with that? Why are you doing that? And I learned that you really throw people off if you just answer happiness. Because it's almost mm -hmm. like, how dare you? <laughs> You're right. not allowed to study something that makes you happy. But that people ultimately do what they want. And that is a very threatening thing to say. So for example, I traveled a lot when I was in grad school. I mean, I stayed in crappy hostels and everything, but I loved traveling. And I'd have people say to me, oh, I wish I could travel or I wish I had time to read. And I'm like, no, you don't want it. You're not choosing it. And I think that people are afraid to accept that their actions really are the result of what they have chosen and it is what they want. Yeah. And, you know, I actually think this pandemic will separate the real doers from the pretenders in that question, right? I mean, if you couldn't pick up a pen to write in the 74 days you've been locked inside, <laughs> you, don't really want, you don't really want to chase the dream of being a writer. I mean, you don't. Amen, I, bro. Listen, I quit my Amen. job as a lawyer to come out here and do entertainment. You know, we've had 74 days. I finished a feature film and a pilot in that time. And I've heard from a lot of other writer friends that were like, yeah, I just can't, I just can't get around to it today. Like, I'm just not feeling it. Like, everything is a job and everything is a choice. And Every day is a choice. Like we said, when, when you're miserable, those, that choice to do it is harder. But it's also hard even to do the things that you really love. It's really hard to get up. I love writing. It's still also very hard to get myself mentally prepared to sit down and write for 8 to 12 hours. And I think that's the question that it is, it is scary for people to realize that, oh, no, it's just up to you. Nobody can tell you. There's no oracle out there. It's just inside you. That's terrifying. 
Yeah, just reminded me, the philosopher and writer Albert Camus, he was asked one time, how do you write all this stuff? And he just said, you sit down and you do it. Like he just yeah. said, there is no way around it. You sit down and you, well, he would plant himself at a cafe and have massive quantities of caffeine, but that's how it got done. Yeah, I mean, I think caffeine is, is mostly, it's mostly caffeine. These days with smartphones, the sitting down aspect of it that everyone has so focused on previously is an interesting point because you can literally be sitting anywhere and do it. I wrote the novel that I wrote under a pen name over four years while having two of my children. I wrote a lot of it while laying down on the floor in the, my daughter's nursery, like being kept awake at night. I would type it on my iPhone, right? Right with MS Word. And there's, and there's script apps, there's script pro, there's all kinds of apps that you can do right on the phone these days. So this, so even if somebody has the problem of, oh, I just can't sit down. Well, what about laying, laying down on the couch and doing it on your phone? Or you can also dictate the dictation software that's out there is absolutely excellent. So it, when you say there's truly no excuse, there's no excuse. They just don't really want to do it. I mean, I, I hate to sound, I hate to sound like a jerk, but at the end of the day, no, you're not ready. You really don't want to do it because it is much easier to do the things that you want to do, even take classes, UCLA extension, Canvas. The, everything is so online these days with Zoom. There is no excuse to educate yourself and to explore other interests while you have your day job. And by the same token, you know, I would say, you know, it's funny because I've been slacking on the comedy stuff just because... This past year, I put out my first stand-up album, and that was like a big check in the box of things that I really wanted to accomplish in my stand-up, and, and the album um, is doing really well. I just took this time to take a breather from it, you know, and I actually, a week went by and two weeks went by, and then I did a self-assessment, and I was like, oh, you know what, that's okay. I guess I'm just not really feeling stand-up right now. Yeah. I want to ask you something, just back to what you said, that you come from a family of lawyers. What was that conversation like when you said that you wanted to go into comedy? Uh, well, you know, they, um, they just don't really talk to me anymore. <laughs> no, I know that's not true. I, no, I know that's, that's not true. Uh, you know, honestly, I didn't come from money. And I think we grew up pretty poor and paid my own way through school anyway. So it was more like, all right, good make it work, oh, you know, okay. like, That's good. you know, they're very supportive, but it wasn't like, Hey, you know, I don't have one of those families that could support me financially in my, you know, in like chasing creative ambitions. I but see. I think that's also part of it too. It's like, if you're going to make a leap into comedy or writing or whatever, and you have a stable job, like a lawyer, I think you should be doing it with the mind of like, no, no, I'm going to be financially successful doing this thing. Cause otherwise you're putting yourself, if you're going to like toss away you know, we, we act like money is some sort of evil, but, you know, money does a lot of good in, in your mental health. You know, I've always found that no matter what job I have, when my financial situation is good, I just have way less stress. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the idea of just chasing your dreams and, you know, when you, when you make that decision to, to work in an industry that doesn't have a lot of set salary, high paying jobs, you have to realize you're going to be setting yourself up for mental stress unless you have some sort of plan to deal with that financially. That's a good point. But no, my family's great. I mean, they're, they're totally supportive. My mom's a, a real character. Anyway, she did stand up one time when she was eight months pregnant with me, actually. True story. That's and, awesome. And that is bombed. awesome. She, she bombed terribly. And, of course, because everyone uh, bombs her first time. This is on Long Island, 1979. <laughs> and the host told her she was horrible and she ran the light 
And after the show, he was like, you don't have an ounce of funny inside of you. And so I've been trying to prove that host wrong ever since. I swear to God, that host was Eddie Murphy, 1979. Told my mom she sucked at comedy. You're serious? I'm serious. True story? 18-year-old Eddie Murphy. Oh, my God. Wow, So if I ever meet him. Wow. That might have been a way of him motivating. You know, some acting coaches. He never did stand up ever again. (laughs) <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it wasn't meant to be. I, I yeah. suppose like he he annihilated. He's a terrible her. motivator. <laughs> yeah, he beat her down, and because yeah. if she really wanted it, she would have kept going yeah. at it. You know, yeah. everybody sucks their first time, their second yeah. time, their third time. Yeah, it takes so much work, and I've said that on here. I mean, I've I've only done it over a dozen times, and yeah. only a couple of those dozen times were like were great. I mean, most of the, a lot of the times there were bombs, but. The times that they were great, it was riding high, and I, it felt really good because it was so much hard work. Although I will say, and Matt, I, this is another question that I ask all the comics that come on the show, is how much do you think the luck of the crowd plays into the night? Meaning, I've done some sets practically the same and had like a 55 to 65% hit rate, and a week later, same place, same venue, same time, got like a 100% hit rate, and the crowd was just awesome. Is that just kind of the luck of the draw, the luck of the night? Or is it, you know, I just got lucky one night and my stuff generally sucks. You're asking somebody who's very a harsh critic of their comedy. And I say, no, there is no luck of the audience. There's none of that. There is you. You have to own the crowd. You have to own your material. There are variations. Sometimes you have to work harder to win that crowd, to win that game. Each one of those is a different game, a different battle. And sometimes it's just so easy and you're like, oh, great. I got this. You know, I'm just, they're loving everything I say. Anything that comes out of my mouth, they're just laughing. They're just rolling. Other times it's like, whatever happened, the feature bombed or, you know, you come out flat, your energy is just not there. You're just telling jokes you've told a hundred times before and you just are not able to summon what you summoned the night before, the night before. And it's painful. But at the end of the day, it's all on you and I, t- I always tell this to any comics who want my advice about when they ask that because i've heard comics say stuff like oh i had a bad time slot it was 11 o'clock and it, you know there's a long show and i'm like you know i've done corporate shows in front of judges at 11 a.m that's a bad time slot i've done shows you know with <laughs> wounded veterans at noon outdoors at walter reed hospital that's a bad time slot those are bad crowds, you know? I mean, 11 o'clock at the comedy store is not a bad crowd. <laughs> so, you know, I, that's, that's my harsh assessment. And every comic may have their own opinion. Again, you know, I'm just speaking of myself and my experience is, yeah, there are some anomalies, but, you know, I've done thousands and thousands of shows and you're going to bomb sometimes. And yes, maybe it is the crowd that time. Like, you know, Yes, I can admit that sometimes it is the crowd, but at the end of the day, the philosophy of you always have to win and you can't blame anybody will get you a lot further. Oh, yeah, no, I wasn't blaming anybody. In yeah. fact, I was basically saying the only reason why I was good that night was because yeah. of the crowd. But, and I think, but, no, but maybe but that's I, not true. I, I don't know. I maybe I was good new, for one night. I was yeah. good one night. And I think a lot of new comics make that mistake of like, when you're new, you have a great energy. When you're a new comic, you should be doing well just based on your energy. Because it's really exciting energy that isn't like, it's like irrational confidence. That amateur who makes that decision to do comedy for the first time, I remember it. You're so pumped. You're so jazzed. It's like the audience wants you to win. There's an element of that that fades 
And the good comics are the ones who can get past that. That's like, you know, that first couple of years where you're just going on this, it's new and exciting. It's almost like dating. No, that doesn't mean you're right for that person. If you are like hot and heavy that first six months, that's how it is for everybody. But I think consistency, you know, you're talking about discipline. I think consistency and discipline as you get older, you realize like those are really the keys to success. And if you lock in on those and you never make excuses for those in the long run, you will win a lot more than you will lose in comedy. So I don't even think, to be honest, I don't even think about the times that I don't do well anymore. Like it's just, all right, you know, I'll go back and tweak some things, but I don't weigh the losses too much if they're not happening that frequently. It's so vulnerable when I think about it. Cause it's, I mean, comedy is, you know, you're expressing a, a thought. Yeah. And I mean, I can do that. I can express a thought, but if people aren't following, it doesn't really bothering me. Like if I'm giving a, you know, a talk somewhere, it doesn't bother me the same way, but expressing a thought that made you laugh and seeing if you can get other people to also, that's the agreement part, I guess. That just seems really, really vulnerable. Yeah. To- but you know, it's funny. It's like, and yet at home, I can't get my wife to laugh at anything. <laughs> same here. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's very hard. I mean, and that, and it's good. She's it, having that tough audience just oh. makes, makes us work harder. I yeah, guess. no, I know it works. If, if my wife even chuckles, I'm like, all right, I got to bring that out on the road. Well, Matt, with the state of cancel culture and now COVID-19, where do you see comedy going or where it is? Yeah, well, right now, you know, there are a lot of comics that are thriving and there are a lot of entrepreneurial comics who set up Zoom shows and you realize now, hey, wait, I can do shows to East Coast audiences now. I can do shows to people all over the world. So a lot of people are actually embracing the technology. Like I'm doing a Zoom show next Thursday. It's different. You have to acknowledge what's going on. You can just do your set without acknowledging the the new reality that we're in. It's like those comics that are still doing 80s bits. You can't just be doing pre-COVID bits without at least acknowledging it. You know, look, I think comedy is in a good place. I think there's a lot of interesting voices out there, diverse voices. The fact that you can have a Dave Chappelle and, and, a, and a Hannah Gadsby and an Ali Wong and a, you know, just all these rant, you know, just people from that are totally different voices saying different things to different people. I like that social media has enabled you to have, you know, you don't need to sit in the back of the comedy store and be picked by some, you know, to be somebody grants you the privilege of passing through the gates, you know, the gatekeepers. A lot of those walls have come down. If you can own your authentic voice and find a group of people doesn't even have to be that big. You can find people that like what you do. You can really make a living. I mean, look at podcasts now. You know, I mean, look at some of these comedy podcasts. There's a podcast called Guys We Eft, and it's one of the biggest podcasts in the world. And it's two comics, you know, they were good New York comics. But now they've blown up beyond how you could blow up just from headlining clubs here and there. Look at Joe Rogan. I mean, he just did a $100 million deal with Spotify. So, I mean, I think comedy is in a great place because, you know, comedians have these strong, authentic voices and opinions. And I think that's what people crave. And when you're talking about agreement with podcasts or whatever, everybody who tunes in is in agreement with you. They like what you're selling, which is interesting too. You know, it's almost like, God, you know, if only, right? Comedy clubs, you don't know who's with you or who's not with you when you show up on any given night. But it's like, if they, if they're, you know, a lot of times if they're just, you know, subscribing to your channel on YouTube, you know, you've, you know, you've already have these fans, which I think is really cool. I'm hoping that there's at least one 
maybe two of the thousands of downloads that this show has had. And they were specifically because somebody thinks I'm funny. I hope there's like one, like one, one person. If there's just one, if you, if you wouldn't mind putting, say, hearing my, my begging of some patting on the back and, and put something on our Facebook page, I'd really appreciate it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a fake Please. Just review. please. I'm gonna be like, oh god, that Rudy's hilarious. That is all I need. I don't need anything more. I just need, I just need one subscribing, listening, good as in the details person to think that I'm a little bit funny and a little bit smart. Besides the fact that I have great hair that they can't see, but they could if Gwen would transfer this over to a YouTube channel. But that's what I would like, audience. Members, please, since we're talking about, since we're really putting it on the audience right now, please, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. <laughs> thank you for opening up rudy <laughs> thank you for sharing your feelings <laughs> his needs i mean that's what this is about in part is to express our needs our desires matt you've got a lot going on before and and gwen will put some links to everything that you got going yeah. on but the website the name of the comedy album the name of the movies where can er yeah. where can everybody this zoom thing that you're doing your zoom comedy where can yeah. people follow you because they should be because i am and you're a badass yeah uh, so matt ritter one is instagram and twitter um my website's matt ritter comedy uh the album is called 40 year old version and you can get it on spotify or itunes and tasteless the film the documentary film that we talked about is on amazon prime and uh, iTunes. I watch it on and iTunes. iTunes. And yeah, iTunes. Uh, it yeah. is on iTunes. Okay. Great content on Well, there. thank you guys. Thank, thank you, Matt. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. We got pretty deep. Yeah. yeah. Good. That's Matt. the point of the show. Thanks. Have a good afternoon. Uh, thanks. You too. Ah, what a fun show. Thank you so much, Matt Ritter. Thank you again, Transit Whisper, Rudy Salo, for being part of the show. Hey, listeners, do us a favor. Do Rudy a favor. Tell him he's funny on Facebook, on our Instagram, good is in the details pod, send an email, good is in the details pod at gmail.com or leave a review. Do this for Rudy. Okay. All right. Thank you for listening. Now remember, stay safe, wash your hands and stop hoarding the toilet paper. Bye.